We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning, church. And good morning, Hill City kids, as you go to your Sunday school class. I'll miss you this morning. Good morning. Um, I'm Bob Yurick, and for those of you that don't know me, and for those of you that do know me, you know that I am the children's director and also a deacon here at the Hill, and it is an honor and privilege to be able to share God's word with you today. In fact, before we begin, I'm going to just ask uh, for all of us just to turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading of his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we say that because that is who you are, and that is because of your Son and what he's done for us. Um, And Father, I just pray today as we um, look into your word, Lord, we take a look at Moses and Jethro, but we're really taking a look at Christ. Help us to remember that Moses came with the law, but Christ came with truth and grace. So Father, I pray as we look into your truth today, into your word, that you would apply your grace to our hearts so that we might receive it and it might bear fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we'll be looking and examining Exodus 18, or should I say Exodus 18, we'll be examining our hearts. Um, I think the big picture here is, as always, when we look into the Bible, we'll see the God who rescues. And today we're going to take a look at He rescues both Jew and Gentile. Exodus 18 is not just a story about Moses and Jethro. It's more than a historic retelling of a father-in-law and son-in-law catching up on life. It's a snapshot, a glimpse into the unfolding redemptive story of God revealing himself as the God who rescues his people. I know that for some of you here today, life is good. Things are going surprisingly smooth, and you're enjoying your freedom. Well, I want to challenge you then to look and dig a little deeper, and ask yourself, what truly is freedom? What is at your center? Where does your identity rest? What's driving you, and where are you going? And when you get there, then what? But I also know that a lot of you feel trapped. Stuck in a rut, unable to get out, unable to get off the treadmill of life. It may be relationships, or the lack of relationships. Maybe it's school or work. It may be health or age. It may be unfair circumstances, stereotyping, unjust people in authority that are suppressing and taking advantage of you. You may feel financially trapped, where every time you take one step forward, you always seem to take two steps back. At times, it feels like the whole world is just, just hardwired to keep you down and you can't get a break. If you fall into either of these two camps, please keep your mind open to the God at the heart of this story, the God who comes to the rescue. At the surface level of Exodus 18, the two main characters in this historical narrative are Jethro and Moses. Although Moses is on center stage throughout most of the book of Exodus, in this chapter, the spotlight seems to be on a somewhat obscure character, Jethro, 
Moses' father-in-law. But before we dive into the text, let's look back at events prior to this meeting so that we will better understand the significance of this family reunion. Moses, first of all, was a humble man and a faithful leader returning from an epic battle between a stubborn, cruel, hard-hearted demigod, Pharaoh, versus the one and only true living eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth. God had sent Moses as his prophet to tell Pharaoh to let his people go free to worship him. But these words of life and liberty fell upon a hard and tyrannical heart. It was a one-sided battle where God systematically exposed the false gods of Egypt while revealing that he, the God of Israel, was the Lord Almighty through a series of ten plagues. Each plague revealed God's power and might while Pharaoh responded with a false promise to let the Hebrews go free. Once the plague ended, then Pharaoh would retract his impotent and unreliable word and refuse to obey God and let his people go free. This tragic cycle did not end surprisingly with the tenth plague, the plague of death to the firstborn of every household, where only those who trusted in God and applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their throne were spared by the angel of death. No, it took the arrogant dismissal of God parting the Red Sea and Pharaoh's rebellious heart signing his own death sentence as he and his army charged in after the Israelites as they crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but Pharaoh and his army were swept away and drowned. Amen. This calamity turned into triumph. Not only had revealed God himself to Israel and Egypt, but the entire ancient world took note of how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, single-handedly toppled and pillaged the mighty Egyptian empire without a single Hebrew lifting a sword. No other God can save like the Lord Almighty. Now let's take a look at Jethro. Jethro, on the other hand, was not a Jew, but he was a man of faith. His title was Priest of Midian, Now, the Midianites were not descendants of Isaac, through whom God's promise to bless and make into a holy nation, but Midian, their father, was a son of Abraham. It is arguable that Jethro would have had some knowledge of the God of Abraham. After all, let's take a look at Jethro. Jethro did risk the wrath of Pharaoh by showing kindness to mercy to Moses, a Hebrew outlaw, when Moses was fleeing Egypt by giving his daughter to him in marriage and making him an in-law, no longer an outlaw. Jethro continues to respond in faith by blessing Moses as he goes back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and gives shelter to Moses' wife and sons until he returns. Now, I'm not saying at this point Jethro is a believer, but he is a God-fearing man. Having that background, let's now dive in to Exodus 18. So if you've not turned to Exodus 18, please do so, starting with verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of the Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah, and after he had sent her away and her two sons, of whom he was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in the foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against his people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. I want to stop right there. Here we see that the proclamation of God's rescue produces fruit. And what is that fruit? I believe it's eyes of faith. We see here that Moses' testimony Okay, the testimony, not Moses, but his testimony, the truth of what God has done, had done a powerful work in Jethro's heart. There's a lot going on in this passage. Verse 1 tells us that the word is out and the good news of God coming to the rescue of Moses and setting the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt is being spread throughout the ancient world. And Jethro hears about God's amazing rescue. In verses 2 through 7... Moses and Jethro reunite with sincere and genuine respect and fatherly affection. Then finally, in verses 8 through 12, we see Jethro joyfully receive the good news from a first-hand reliable witness, his son-in-law, and then responds with a confession of faith and an acceptable sacrifice to God, the God of Israel. I believe Jethro is saved. Let me explain. After hearing the good news from Moses... Jethro joyfully makes the confession, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Not only this, but Jethro, in verse 12, then brings a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Moses, Aaron, and all the elders of Israel join with him and eat bread with him. I think we have some major foreshadowing going on here. Jethro, a Gentile, priest is performing sacrifices and leading worship, while Moses, Aaron, and the Jewish elders join with him, and this is acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, this is before the Levitical law, but wow, I think we have a foreshadowing of the Church of Christ, where Jew and Gentile are made one through faith in Christ our Savior, and this all takes place again before the law. After all, what saves us? It's not the law, but it's faith. Faith in the work that God is going to do. Faith in God's rescue plan. Faith in Christ. Yes, God loves Israel and will always. But God loves all the nations and desires to have all people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Israel 
was God's vehicle and poster child to the ancient world of his saving grace. God was carefully laying down the groundwork throughout history for the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, revealing his character, faithfulness, awesome power, and glory through a flawed and often rebellious people to give hope to the nations. This testimony of God's faithfulness and saving power can guide people to place their trust in God. Paul says it best in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or in other words, the Gentile. Let's read on. Jethro's reunion and Moses' reunion is not over. Let's go to verse 13. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that, was, that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and sit as judge and all these people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and make known the statutes of God and his law. Moses' father-in-law said, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, and I will give you counsel. And may God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and work and what they are to do. See, the next point that I'd like to bring out here is that the education of God's law produces fruit. And this fruit is harmony, peace, and protection. See, in this text, we see Jethro makes some observations and conclusions. And his conclusion is that the means do not justify the end. Moses had good intentions, very good intentions. But the ending is not going to be a good one. Both Moses and the people are going to wear themselves out. This reminds me of Walmart. Have you ever noticed that Walmart seems to have at least 20 to 30 checkout lines, but only three are ever open? Maybe it's just me, but it seems like the workers at the checkout register are always frazzled, and the people in line are just tired of waiting. Well, for Moses and the Israelites, it was a lot worse. According to chapter 12 of Exodus, there were 600,000 able-bodied men, men ready for battle, this didn't include the women, the children, and the elderly. Therefore, it's safe to say that there were over a million people that Moses was leading. And these people were known to grumble quite a bit. And if they couldn't get along with Moses, who was a good guy, I doubt they got along with each other. I'm sure what Jethro was seeing was insanity that makes Walmart look like paradise. Jethro's advice is education. Teaching God's people his laws and decrees, teach the people how to walk and how to work. Moses is teaching God's people how to live. This advice is very proactive 
versus Moses' reactive method of waiting till a problem pops up and then deal with it with the law. This is great wisdom by Jethro, who also added, make sure this is good with God first. Get God's blessing. Jethro got it. He understood the purpose of God's laws. God gave us, law, gave us the law because he loves us and wants the best for us. God's laws are meant for our protection. For example, if we take a look at the Ten Commandments, we can break them into two categories. The first four commands tell us how to love God and how to have a healthy relationship with him. The next six commands tell us how to love one another and how to have healthy relationships with other people. Did you ever think of the first commandment as a law to protect us? Let's take a look at it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The God of the Bible is the God who offers freedom and sets us free from the gods that would enslave us. God is our creator and designer. He knows how we function best, individually and socially. His law sets us free to live a life to the max and truly experience joy. It only makes sense that a people who know how to love God and love one another would be a lot less taxing on Moses as well as one another. And there lies the problem. That's the problem. People don't make sense because of sin. Because of sin, a natural distrust towards God and the natural inclination to think of ourselves independent of God, able to make good decisions on our own, education is not enough. But the law does help to restrain and hold back the full damage that fallen man would do to himself and to one another. God's laws aren't means of earning favor or merit with God. They were never meant to save us. They aren't a measuring tool to see if our good outweighs our bad. This is just self-righteousness, a false sense of security that inflates our opinion of self and debases the holiness of God. God's laws were given to us because he loves us and for our protection and to lead us to the realization of our great need of a Savior. There's something wrong with us at our core. And this realization of a Savior will guide us to Christ. As Paul says to the church in Galatia, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Since education was enough, although it's good advice, Jethro goes on. Let's read in verse 21. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace." So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. 
They judged the people at all times. The difficult disputes they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went on his way to his own land. Here we see the, the wise wisdom, the delegation of God's authority produces fruit. And the fruit is order. God is a God of order. Jethro knew that one man couldn't run God's people alone. Not even Moses. He would need help. He would need leaders. Moses needed to delegate his authority, but to whom would Moses delegate this authority? What would they look like? They should be men who fear God, who are honest, and can't be bribed. I would like to focus on the characteristic of being God-fearing, because I think if this is in place, it should take care of honesty and hating bribes. What does it mean to fear God? Both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible give a description that goes beyond a healthy respect for God as an authority figure. In the preceding chapters of Exodus, we are about to witness God's descent upon Mount Sinai, where the mountains smoldered like smoke, like a furnace, and the whole earth trembled, and the people pleaded with Moses, do not have God speak to us, or else they feared that they would die. And in the New Testament, we have Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is a very sobering statement by Christ. But then, Jesus talks about God caring for the life of sparrows. And and yet, how much more he cares for us. I believe that this is a key to understanding the fear of God. Our fear of death should never eclipse our fear of God. Because we know that he is the one in authority of both the living and the dead. And he is the one who loves so greatly that nothing can stand in the way of his rescuing his people. See, the fear of man, I don't know about you, but the fear of man will always lead to places of regret and shame. But the fear of God will give you a boldness and courage for life that's miraculous. See, Moses is a good example of this. Moses was a humble man. He knew that he wasn't much, but he knew that God would do much through him. Moses feared God more than losing his place in Pharaoh's family and and palace. Moses feared God more than leaving the safety of a new home in Midian with Zipporah and Jethro. Moses feared God more than picking a fight with the most powerful man in the ancient world, the Pharaoh. Moses feared God more than leading a mob of unruly people that as soon as things got tough, they wanted to stone you. And he did this for four years in the desert. Moses feared God to the point that he was faithful to appeal to the mercy of God on behalf of his rebellious people, rather than throw them under the bus and say, God, give them what they deserve. I don't know about you, but if I was Moses, I think I would have said, God, just cut them loose. 
but not, Je- not, not Moses. Jethro knew that Moses needed men who feared God, like Moses, to help keep peace and order among God's people. So in this passage, we see here that God is a God of rescue. And we see that the testimony of God rescuing his people can point people to faith in God, saving faith. We also see that educating people about God is important and also the delegation of his authority is important. But yet, there's still something missing. That's why I'm going to use Hebrews 3 to transition. In Hebrews 3, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we firmly hold to our confidence and hope in which we glory. How can we apply this to our lives? I think um, we can take a lot away from this. If the proclamation of the story of the Israelites being set free from slavery in Egypt brought about salvation and hope and faith in God, how much greater is the gospel that the church of Jesus Christ has? See, we have not just a leader, but we have God himself, Jesus Christ, who came down to earth, put on flesh, became one of us, and was born under the law. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. He is the only one who perfectly loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, as well as loving his neighbor, even to the point of death. How much greater is a gospel that sets us free from the power of sin? When we look at the Israelites, we see, yes, they were set free from their circumstances, which were very harsh. But as soon as they were given freedom and fed by the hand of God, they wanted to go back to slavery. In fact, one time before they were ready to, to stone Moses because of grumbling over not having water, they, 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 they made a statement. They said, back in Egypt, we always had food to eat. We had pots full of meat. I mean, I think sometimes when we take our eyes off of God, we kind of remember that the good old days really weren't that good. Some of the things that we claim gave us freedom really were enslaving. See, they needed the gospel. The law cannot save. The law will point us in the right direction, but only Jesus can save. See, Moses was a faithful servant and leader 
But Jesus laid down his life. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul tells the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. How much greater is God's rescue plan through Jesus Christ than the rescue of Moses? Now, that was great. That was amazing. But what God, what God has done through Christ for us is far greater. I, I want to challenge, if you're out there and you're not sure about Christ, you're not sure about the gospel, you're not sure if Jesus is your Savior, I want to challenge you to be like Jethro. And when you hear the good news that God sent his one and only son in the world to die for your sins, to take the penalty that you deserve so that you can be forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, rejoice and receive it with faith. See, Pharaoh, he had, he he experienced God's rescue plan. But because of the hardness of his heart, no matter how much truth God gave him, his heart just became harder. Be careful not to harden your heart towards God's truth, but instead rejoice over the goodness that God has done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And believers, okay, hey, let's be like Moses and let's make the testimony clear. Okay, and you might say, who am I? Well, guess what? Moses said the same thing. He said, I, I, I stutter. I'm not a good speaker. You're sending me. God's saying, who makes the mouth? Who makes the person deaf or mute? It's me. Okay? The power is in the message. The power is in the gospel. The power is not in the messenger. So take that weight off your shoulders and be free to share God's word and God will do the work. Education. Okay. Education is still important, okay? And for us today, um, let's take a look. I'm going to take a quick look at, it's funny, um, not funny, it's, it's amazing. You know, here we have Mount Sinai, God descending, giving the law. The, the mountain is smoldering. The earth is shaking. The people are saying, God, please be quiet. We'll listen to Moses, but if we keep hearing your voice, we'll surely die. That's Mount Sinai. Matthew 5, we have another Mount Sinai. Okay? It's the Sermon on the Mount. How much greater is the proclamation and education of God's salvation plan of the gospel? Jesus comes down and, and he teaches the law, but in a whole new way. He gets to the heart of it. Jesus was a true radical. He got to the very heart of the issue. And the heart of the issues are hearts. I'd just like to read Matthew 5, part 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, for those of you that don't know Christ, I just want to make it very clear, this is not Jesus giving a higher moral order for us to follow in order to get into heaven. 
Again, this is not scaffolding to heaven if you do these things. Poor in spirit, do you realize that you have no righteousness in and of yourself that you can offer to God, that's acceptable to God? Blessed are those who mourn. Have you ever just gotten tired, sick and tired, of being sick and tired of yourself? Where you just keep doing things that you know you should not? Do you mourn over your own rebellious heart and your own stupidity? Blessed are the meek. I know a lot of us, some of us at least, are control freaks. We like to have control of things and we think we're in control. When we look at reality, there's very little things that we have control of. And we definitely don't have control over our destiny outside of putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to meekly hand over the control of your life to the one who is good, to the one who is sovereign, to the one who knows all, to the one who loves you more than you can imagine? Again, Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? It's a deeper and more radical understanding of God's law. We need a new heart. And today, Christ would like to change your heart. And I'm just going to remind um, my Christian brothers, too, be careful not to be like the Galatians and turn back to the law. Be careful not to be like the Israelites who wanted to go back into slavery. Make sure that you understand the purpose of the law. Okay? It's never to pat ourselves on the back. It's never to earn God's approval. Okay? It's because God, God loves us. And also, too, if we're really honest, we take a look at the Ten Commandments, loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself. We really don't do that good of a job. We continually need to apply the gospel to our lives. We continually need to remind ourselves that our power source doesn't come from within, but it comes from Christ. It comes from God. And only when we trust in him and do things his way and stop striving on our own can he live through us. We need to live the gospel. The gospel, yes, it brings us to the point of salvation, but that's just the beginning. We need to apply the gospel together as a family. It's something we need to live out together. I just want to stress that too. Um, we're not called to be, if I can use the term, lone ranger Christians. Okay? He called us together as a family because we are his family. We need one another. And we need to carry out the Great Commission together. And that brings us to the next point, delegation. Um, I find it very interesting that uh, one of the first things Jesus did when he got together with his disciples was he sent them out in twelves. He sent, he sent them out in twos, actually. Okay? He had the twelve. He was, he was a delegation expert. Okay? And he was God. Okay? And if anyone could have done it all on his own, he could have. But he chose to set an example for us. And then later on, we have um, the churches take root after Christ's departure, after his death and resurrection. We've got the church. And Paul then, he tells Timothy how to delegate authority and order in selecting elders and deacons in the church so that we could be witnesses to the end of the world, starting with our own father-in-law, with our, the Jethro's in our life. But God is a God of order. And as his church people, um, one pastor can't do it alone. One leader can't do it alone. 
Okay? God has set things up in such a way that we are to delegate this authority. And we always need to remember that God's ultimate authority comes from his word. Okay? It again, it's not the man. It's the message. It's God's truth. It's the power of the gospel that will change lives, starting with ours and overflowing to others. So, brothers and sisters and friends, I'd like to challenge all of you today to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to heart. Take the truth of what he's done. Take the truth that he can set you free from yourself. That's probably the greatest thing that enslaves, is we want to be in charge of ourselves, and we are not very good at it. And we also tend to be people that make idols. Sometimes we take good things and put them at the center of our being, and the most important thing, whether it be a a relationship, a, a child, a spouse, a job, and all of a sudden that becomes our focus. It is unworthy. It is unworthy to be on the seat of your heart on the throne of your heart. And not only that, I guarantee if you give enough time, the very thing that you worship will be destroyed, and in time, it will greatly disappoint you or destroy you yourself. Only Christ can be king in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can call you Father. Thank you so much that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins, and rose again. And only because of the work that he did for us, paying the penalty in full for our own rebelliousness, our own distrust, our own saying, God, I don't know if you really love me. I don't know if I can put my trust in you. Lord God, please give us new eyes and a new heart through the power of your Spirit, Lord. I pray for anyone here that does not know you, that they would come to know you, um, that your word would bear fruit. And Father, I pray for us that do know you, that we would continue to grow closer to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to one another as we carry out your great commission. Your Father, I thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.